Hey there, welcome to the Snakebird Podcast. My name's Josh. And I'm Steve. Together we invite you to join us. As we explore the mysteries of Scripture. The realm of God. And freedom through Christ. So spread out your wings. And slither in place. Because this is Snakebird. Hey, welcome Snakebirds to a brand new episode of the podcast. Our discussion today is unique and something we haven't done before, but hope to do many of these in the future. You've landed on a Snakebird mailbag. That's right, Snakebirds. We can't wait to jump into this mailbag episode, even if it's our own mail we're reading for this category that we first (laughs) launched. But uh, to our defense, these are actually questions that have come from other people, and that's what this new type of episode we're hoping will be about, you know, those random questions that arise as as we go day to day. So I'm excited to get into this this new style of episode. Yeah, yeah. And, And the way that I thought about it was, I mean... Whether it's um, from listeners like you or whether it's in our personal just day-to-day lives, Mm -hmm. we hear these questions that really warrant an answer, but sometimes they don't feel like they're potentially a full episode. Yeah. And thus, uh, the making of a Snakebird mailbag episode, which we would do, Mm -hmm. I don't know, every so often, especially if you guys uh, respond well to this and start asking uh, various questions. That's true. Because even in our day-to-day lives, we'll have ideas as people ask us questions in our own walks, you know, for episodes. But like you said, they might not be long enough to warrant a full episode. So it's like a, a compilation of Snakebird minis. Yeah, so um, definitely listen at the end of the episode as we give the instructions on how to connect with us because we would love to hear any questions that you have that can be included in our mailbag episodes. That we would. Yeah, so should we just go ahead and dive right into our first question? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. I'll read this one. (laughs) Uh, The other day I heard a grown man refer to God in prayer as daddy. And now it's something I can't unhear. Is that an acceptable way to refer to the creator of all life? I love the way you presented that. <laughs> it's, it's one, you know, that it's, this will be an interesting one. I'll just say that. Yes. Take, take us away, Josh, but it'll be interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's just rip the bandaid off, right? <laughs> because this is one of those I have heard. And I remember being in church with a guy that started prayers in this manner and uh, completely unique to say the least. Yeah, it really is. It's an odd thing, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, at the same time, I never want to be the one who who stifles somebody's innocent relationship with God. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, just sits weird. Yeah, um, in, in my opinion, and I and I've heard many others' opinions too. But yeah, let's let's look at it. Is it okay? Is it too weird? Is it is it all right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think we're gonna be able to formulate our own conclusion on it. But yeah. just looking into the background, I believe that this term originated from the word Abba, which is found in the Bible in three different places. Uh, the first place is Mark fourteen thirty six. It's actually said by Jesus, where he said Abba and. And then right after that, he said the word father. And so Ava means father in Aramaic. And then, of course, the word that he said after is father in the Greek. And he said, uh, Abba, father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And so Jesus right there instituted this phrasing. And then Paul later continues it in Romans 8, 15. The verse says, The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Mm-hmm. And then Galatians 4, 6 says, Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And, um, you know, I I found it interesting that uh, just looking at some of the different translations, I was wanting to see, like, if the message went as far as saying daddy, because if there was any translation out there that was going to call God daddy, uh, it was going to be the message. Yeah, right. But um, (laughs) (laughs) it, it just says Papa. And so I thought, okay, well, that's kind of weird too. Yeah, uh, there, there is some, uh, there's some weight to that. I'm gonna, okay. I'm gonna get into it if that's okay. Yeah. Okay. So this question took me a lot longer to research than I ever thought it would have, 
and I went down some rabbit holes and I went down some various areas. So I found some different um, articles that I'm going to share from. This first one is actually from the Gospel Coalition, and I just wanted to read this as it was quoted on the website. Uh, This is what it says. This intimacy and love between the divine father and his son is as true as the existence of God himself, for it is his very nature. But it is simply not true that Jesus' use of the word Abba means something that a small child would utter in reference to his father. It does not mean daddy or papa. The origin of this understanding is generally traced to the notable German Lutheran New Testament scholar Joachim Jeremias, who in his 1971 text, New Testament Theology, explained that Abba was the chatter of a small child, a children's word used in everyday talk and seemingly disrespectful, indeed unthinkable to the sensibilities of Jesus' contemporaries to address God with this similar word. While Jeremias did not use the word daddy or papa, in relation to Abba, the implication was strong and others came along to make that connection. But other Hebrew and New Testament scholars have taken exception with this understanding. The University of Freiburg's George Shelbert critiqued Jeremiah's assertion in a 1981 essay, and then later in a 2011 book-length treatment entitled Abba Vader. Uh, which, you know, <laughs> Vader, yeah, Vader means um, father uh, in yeah. German, which I was thinking, you know what, if we're going to say Abba, the most famous thing that's connected to it is actually Mamma Mia. <laughs> 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 I forgot to insert that dad joke earlier in this discussion. Okay, so um, George Shelbert He contends that Jeremiah's interpretation is an error and unwarranted. He elaborates, in the Aramaic language at the time of Jesus, there was absolutely no other word than Abba available if Jesus wished to speak or address God as Father. Naturally, such speaking of and addressing thereby would lose its special character, for it is indeed the only possible form. This is because Abba means either father or one's own father. Shelbert explained that Jeremiah even adjusted his earlier understanding in the face of his critical peers. And so all that goes to say is that there's no linguistic support for it meaning daddy. And even the one that came up with that idea that it was daddy, which he didn't make that connection, uh, retracted a little bit. Okay. Um, one other thing that this article references in an article by James Barr called titled Abba isn't daddy. He explains It is fair to say that Abba in Jesus' time belonged to a familiar or colloquial register of language, as distinct from more formal and ceremonious language. But in any case, it was not a childish expression comparable with daddy. It was a more solemn, responsible adult address to a father. All right. So, I mean... That's definitely the history behind Daddy, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. I just read all this, and I'm like, oh my gosh. Because there is more, and I'll I'll get into it. But I thought, man, I really need to take a break right there and have a discussion. Because I've heard this from the pulpit. I've heard this growing up for a long, long time. Because um, we've sang worship songs that have the term Abba in it. and, And it's hard to know what image in my mind it's always conjured up, but... It has uh, created more of an intimacy than just like father. Yeah. And I've never gone full on springboard and jumped into the daddy pool. Yeah. But I mean, it does have that, um, like I said, again, connotation of more intimacy than just the the coldness of saying, hey, um, excuse me, father, can I have some money? Or, you know, it's like talking to somebody about your your dad. Yeah. And um I also feel like this is one of those issues where a lot of people can struggle because they either start to uh, superimpose their relationship with their father into their relationship with God, or they're like, well, I never called my father daddy. And so there's just that weird muddled murkiness of like um, the people that are way comfortable with it. And they're like, daddy was always there for me. So I can call God daddy. And then there's the people who are like, I didn't have a daddy. And so that just makes it strange. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, those three mentions in the New Testament, they do have a very child to parent feel Mm -hmm. um, in a more intimate way, like you were saying. Uh, They might not 
mean daddy, you know, yeah. translated directly. But it, they do seem to have that. And, you know, Jesus himself refers to a childlike dependence on God in, in Matthew 18 and Mark 10, where he says, uh, unless you change and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven and mm-hmm. allow the children to come to me. Um, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So he he almost um, does set up this this very childlike dependence on God, so I, I think there's certainly a case to be made for someone who has this childlike dependence, as we all should in some mm-hmm. degree. Um, but I, I mean, I think the purpose of this conversation would beg the question: What exactly does that look like? Yeah, you know what I mean. Uh, because yes, we're to have that type of heart towards God, but does that mean that we should revert our phrasing and language to adolescent and childish vocabulary? Yes, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So that that's something that I kind of thought of. Yeah, there is this childlike mentality when we're compared to you know our relationship with God. But yeah, and I have a, a few thoughts on that. But uh, what what else did you have on that, Josh? So uh, even Wikipedia. Uh, weighed in on this, which I thought was interesting. It said, some Christian literature translates Abba to Daddy, suggesting that it is a childlike, intimate term for one's father. This has been rejected by most scholars because Abba, unlike Daddy, is used by adult children as well as young children. In the time of Jesus, it was neither markedly a term of endearment nor a formal word, but the word normally used by sons and daughters throughout their lives in the family context. This is where uh, someone said, it is best understood as Papa, since the context within which it was used always had a filial relationship, whether adult or juvenile. Indeed, the usage of Abba in Galatians 3.22-4.7 through 4, 7 suggests that Abba asserts not childlike relation to God, but the privileged status of the adult son and heir. Oh, Okay. So that's yeah, it's funny because Papa sounds like like a a different version of Daddy to me. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. And, and that's just me as a Western hearer. Yeah, of the phrase because like a child would say Papa, and as he grew up, he'd say Hey, Pop. Yeah, Daddy, yeah. Dad. You know, type of thing. Yeah. But that's just my Western ears. So so there's it sounds like there's a lot more to this in the ancient language. It just doesn't quite translate right. Well, I have to laugh because almost every time I clicked on an article or or tried to do research. Inevitably, I'd go to read the comments underneath. They were just shredding one another of like, I can always call God daddy. And and my daddy was there. And it's just, it's interesting because, you know, you have all these different backgrounds of people weighing in. Yeah, I do have um, a little bit more in a moment that I feel seals the deal for me on which way I lean. But this also made me think about the different ways that we refer to God. And and for me, you know, when I thought about this, if I was going to talk to the gentleman that originally um, I heard say daddy, I just, I guess it's like, where do we land on our balance of trust, respect, love, and fear? Because we know throughout the Bible that... Uh, we are told that we are supposed to revere God and we're supposed to fear him. Psalm 33, 8 says, let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the people of the world revere him. And it made me start to kind of wander back into that camp where I get really upset that people say, Jesus is my homeboy. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. no, <laughs> yes, he, he is our friend that sticks closer than a brother, but that's almost like a degrading term to refer to him. Yeah. You know, I, I went as far as somebody saying, well, we can't call God our friend. And I'm like, well, uh, Abraham was able to call God his friend. And so there's that weird. Well, Jesus says that you are now my friend. Yes, yes, exactly. So there's that weird balance of like, where do we, where do we strike the balance of saying, um, I'm flipping about this title or I'm so comfortable with my relationship that I can that I can refer to them as this. Yeah. You know, I think for me personally, I don't think I could ever approach somebody who is using this terminology for God and 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 kind of talk this out with them and say I don't think this is something you mm-hmm. should be doing. No. Because I think I think kind of the way I go with my notes and I and I think you and me land on the same, I think we'll find out. But <laughs> um, 
Because it really revolves a- around what's going on in their heart. And that's how the Snakebird podcast ended. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. <laughs> oh, well Yes, it very well much is. Uh, it is going on in their heart, whatever's going on in their heart. <laughs> I just think it'd be funny if like, we get a snake, uh, a mailbag question, and that is like the it's, defining factor of our relationship. I imagine like a Dateline episode, for, like the little podcast got way more famous after we quit it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was like, and after all of these episodes, yeah. that was the hill they died on. Yeah, I was thinking like VH1's <laughs> behind the music. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, things uh, were going well. Yeah, they, it was so good. And of all topics, this one it yes. broke them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, enough of silliness. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, no, that's one thing that I think about because I, you know, there, I, I have to wonder. There might be some listeners right now listening to us, and they're like, "Listen, just because." Those three mentions in the New Testament don't translate to daddy. Do not state in any way, shape, or form it tells you not to call God daddy. Yes. Just because that didn't translate to that term doesn't mean you're not supposed to do it. Yeah. And so I, I wonder if there might be someone thinking that and thinking, listen, my quiet time with God, this is a title I use for God that is very intimate between me and him. And and I, I don't ever want to step in their in their relationship with God and say, no, that's not correct. That doesn't translate right. You know, you, you know, play the, the Pharisee type exacting thing on mm-hmm. them. But at the same time, I do have some verses here in a minute that I'm going to bring that I, cause a lot of the, a lot of times this isn't done in private. It's done publicly. Yes. And I have some concerns with that. Mm-hmm. So I do have some scriptures, but I, I do want to mention all of what I just did for any listener that might be out there even right now as we're talking, thinking, listen, you can't, this is my private time with God. Yeah. I, I love him in this way. And, and this Don't is interject the, on me. the phrasing that I use and the Bible doesn't say I can't, you know, mm-hmm. And yeah. so I, I personally can never go approach someone and say, hey, this isn't right. But, I mean, this is an odd topic. It is. It's weird to hear someone else say, for me it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, you want me to keep going? Yeah, you keep going, and then I'll jump in where, where I can. Okay, here's another unique presentation. When the Jews referred to God as a father, they were referring to God's sovereign authority over their nation. He was the father to be revered and to be feared when they sinned against him. Deuteronomy 32.6 Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you? who made you and established you, Psalm 103.13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Isaiah 63.16. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from old is your name. Malachi 2.10. Have we not all one father? I'm not going to read all of it, but what I wanted to state is you might note with all of these verses that I just said, Though God is being addressed as Israel's father, he is not being addressed as father. When the old covenant people approached their God, they did so only through the access of the temple where God placed his presence and his name. When Jesus came and preached to his disciples, he referred numerous times to their father in heaven. Jesus told his disciples directly that they might approach their father in prayer by saying, Our Father. I'm sure that this would have been a shocking thing for Jewish disciples to hear. How can we approach the sovereign creator in such a direct manner? The consideration of this one little phrase of direct address was probably a jaw-dropping moment, but Jesus was sitting right in front of them. He is the fulfillment of the temple, and being a disciple of Christ brings direct access to the transcendent God of the universe. And so, um, in the article that I was reading, basically the person said, what changed for the New Testament people of God? And he said, well, I realized that not much has changed. God is still the transcendent God of the universe. And while the scriptures show that God is both transcendent and eminent, we must not forfeit his transcendence to enjoy his eminence. Both in the Old Testament and in the New, God is described in his transcendent holiness as a consuming fire. 
And I was like, oh my gosh. And I, uh-huh. I think this is what um, Piper said. He said, to suggest that Abba Father means daddy is to humanize and possibly even trivialize an intimacy that is so much more gloriously understood in the spectacular blessing of being in the new covenant. It is so much more glorious when the intimacy is understood through the work of the cross rather than a designation we give to feeble human dads. Should we call God daddy? Well, it wouldn't be my suggestion to do so. So it it sounds like Piper was almost coming from the angle of, since this is only one of his attributes, it's not worthy because he's so much more than that. I think he was the divine simplicity type thing. Yeah. And and also why would we trivialize someone so great and so worthy of all of our praise? Because again, we should praise him for all that he's done, not just um, relate him to something so feeble as like daddy, you know? Okay. That's, it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I, I see where he's coming from, but I, I don't know if I would categorize our, our personal relationship, our new access to God through Jesus as something trivial in in, in, dis, in a descriptor that's unique to us, to him. Mm. You know Maybe, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Because I, I, I wonder if some people that, I mean, that, I don't know, it, it, it's obvious that people look at that word so differently. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. I, I, I'm not trying, I'm just thinking out loud here yeah. as, as I think about that. I mean, it's, yeah, sorry. I'm <laughs> well, I don't want to put words in his mouth because I, of course, I'm speculating for him and what he meant. But yeah, like, oh, true. Uh, I do have one more um, thing to share. Yeah. Uh, in an online article on the website, Him Publications, I found this written by a man named Chad Harrington. He said, most people think Abba means daddy, but that's not quite right. Daddy doesn't have the bite of Abba. It's personal, which is part of the meaning, but that's not the whole story. Abba doesn't mean daddy. It doesn't mean dad. It means father. I will obey you. Most people think Abba means simply having an intimate relationship with your father, but there are actually two elements, not just one. The two elements of Abba are intimacy and obedience. It's the obedience part that we miss with equating it to just daddy. Abba is not merely about intimacy. It's also about authority. Abba is a term of endearment, intimacy, and close relationship on one hand and obedience on the other hand. Daddy is an inadequate translation. It's both intimacy and obedience, so neither sir nor daddy are adequate translations. The true meaning of Abba is, Father, I will obey you. Both elements must be present. This is so important. Um, and then he goes on to, to actually um, give an example of Isaac using the word Abba. And and he backs it up because he's like, I know that they weren't even speaking Aramaic then necessarily. They were speaking Hebrew, but he says, listen to me on this. So this is, this is what he says. Isaac's carrying the bundle of wood, the flint, the knife up Mount Moriah with his father, Abraham. He doesn't use the Aramaic word Abba because he doesn't speak Aramaic. He's a Hebrew before Hebrews became Jews who became Jewish exiles. The story comes to us in Hebrew, but when he says father, he means Abba, which is father, I will obey. Even though he doesn't use the word, he elicits the meaning. We hear nothing out of Isaac's mouth the whole time, that is, until he says, father. He made it all the way from the land of the Philistines to Mount Moriah, a three-day journey without questioning anything. But he started to wonder, the wood and the fire are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham really didn't give him an answer, at least a clear answer, yet Isaac continued in good faith. The intimate father-son connection went straight up the mountain, and he was obedient. We know the posture of Isaac's heart was to obey because that's exactly what he does. He follows through with his father's apparent plan to kill him. We know, of course, that Abraham was being obedient too, which is probably how Isaac learned obedience. The plan, as it turns out, was not all that crazy, but was actually from God. Isaac's father on Mount Moriah is the same Abba father that Jesus cried, also from Mount Moriah. They were both questioning in their own way the plan of their father, yet because of their intimate, trusting relationship with their father, they were both willing to obey. Intimacy and obedience, Abba. 
That's the biblical meaning of Abba, which is a far richer meaning than the mere daddy. For this reason, I sort of wince every time I hear someone say Abba means daddy, because while it surely includes the intimacy that people mean by saying daddy, it goes way beyond that. Abba means father, I will obey you. Oh, wow. And so... Here's where I'll say one last thing, and this is where the connection is about somebody's heart, because he was asked in a question later on in the article about like, how can you not say daddy and why would you be critical of this? And this is what he said. He said, unfortunately, in the Western culture, people who sometimes use the word daddy to talk about God also at times carry a low view of God's authority, which can result in lack of obedience. Oh, wow. And so kind of a red flag. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean. Maybe, um, I don't know. I was thinking of like a girl who's like, she wants a, a lollipop and she's like, daddy, I want it now, you know? Yeah. And, and instead, Charlie he, and the chocolate factory yeah, girl. yeah, exactly. I don't know why that came to me, but he's almost like a whipped guy who has to fall at the, um, the beck and call of his young child, daddy, you know? Yeah. And instead it's like, Again, if that's what it means, if that's the the angle someone's saying it from, then yeah, for sure, yeah, yeah, no doubt. And we have to also remember the the way it sounds to others because. I mean, I, I won't lie on any given week, at least three times I refer to myself as daddy at work, but I'm not yeah. going to be, you know. <laughs> but so daddy has been, in un- the secular world has a really good track record of taking words and turning them dirty. Yes. And so we have yeah. all oh, that yeah. too. That, so, that's definitely out there, isn't it? And so you have to think of how it sounds to others. But yeah. Gosh. I, I kind of do have uh, uh, just a few more things to say on why I think that a grown man or woman should probably rethink using the word daddy. For Can God. I give my last conclusion? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I thought you uh, were done. I thought I was, too. I had one more page. Go for it. Uh, can we call God daddy? Yes, absolutely. If it's a term that we're comfortable with and have a deep understanding of, then I think it's a good thing. However, if it weakens the wonder of God in any way, shape, or form, then I believe we shouldn't. Yeah. Well, I think that's so, well put. Yeah, and I'm excited to hear what you have to say. Well, it's it's not much more. I think that really sums it up. But I'll just include it since uh, I took the trouble to note it down. <laughs> Please. First um, Corinthians fourteen twenty says, "Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature." And you know, there we see. Uh, that we should be gaining childlike sensitivity towards evil, but we should be thinking like adults, or, or if I dare to say, wise as serpents, the mm-hmm. whole snake bird. Um, but in, in regard to our words that come out of our mouth, I also think of Ecclesiastes 5.2. It says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And I really get the sense that a casual use of words can be pretty risque if used in the wrong way with Mm. God. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think you said that in your little ending there. But uh, for two reasons, I think, in this particular topic. Um, One would be the scenario where someone's using uh, a strange phrasing as kind of an attention getter in front of other people. It's like, you know, if I say this weird thing, then people are going to remember it. Mm. And almost a creating of awkward moments in order to get attention. And that could be a big red flag. Uh, Another one would be, you already said it too, lack of, of reverence for God through talking about him like a homeboy mm-hmm. and so that those are the just the ending uh, things that I thought about because we we want to give God the proper reverence and, and if you do that in your quiet time with God and, and that's just one of the terms you use and it's intimate mm-hmm. go for it man. yeah uh, I, but if it's done in a public way and it's just kind of one of these you've seen a movement of people that have started saying this and you're gonna jump on the bandwagon too I'd, I'd rethink that yeah because it's um, if it's not really put on your heart from God and it's something that sounds weird and people kind of look at you sideways something that should be rethought I think yeah yeah. So. And, and if you're in a public setting and you hear somebody say it, don't just start rolling up your sleeves and go, I'm yeah. going to go fix their theology. Yeah. You know, this is something where everyone kind of has to make their own decisions. And <laughs> for crying out loud, Frank, there's children in here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it, it's, uh, you know, I, I have this distant childhood memory where, um, 
an elder stood up on the stage after one of the worship songs and some people had clapped because in youth you clap to certain songs in the congregation you don't mm-hmm. and some people did and he got up and he just reamed the congregation he wow. said you you do not disrespect god in in his house in, in this way and to him the sound of clapping is is like me hearing someone say daddy and mm-hmm. it's weird how people kind of connect it but it just goes to show we can't connect the dots for someone else if it's a real intimate thing uh, between you and God, yeah, it might sound strange to me. That's fine, but think about it in a public setting. It's just, it's one of those things that just mm-hmm. comes to mind. Yeah. No, fully agree. So, yes and no. <laughs> it's such a politician ending. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Well, there you go. Well, we we spent some good time on that we one. We did, yeah. But um, shall we move on to the next one, Josh? We shall, we shall. I think shall. we've said a, as much as we can uh, about Daddy. Probably way more than we should. <laughs> daddy. All right. So the next question is as follows. I got my girlfriend pregnant. Does this mean that I'm living in sin from here on with no blessing from God? And this is a question I was actually asked recently, and I'll keep it vague since it's a personal thing, but a young man had approached me, and the basic situation was he was not living a godly life previously. But after realizing he's going to be a dad, he had this this feeling, this calling in a spiritual way to get right with God. Mm-hmm. And the only way he knew how to do that was to go to church, start going to church. Wow. And so that's that's the the next avenue. He's like, I, I want to I want to know God. I want to get my life right. So he did. And I really don't know if he knew people at these churches or if they were just naturally this way. But he told me that he felt extremely rejected. Because certain people at the churches had told him he was living in sin with this premarital relationship. And until he fixed that, he wasn't welcome there. Wow. And he came to me looking for answers because he's like, I thought I was trying to find God there. Mm -hmm. Apparently, I've got to fix this, whatever that means. And I have some thoughts on that in a minute. But I I really want to pause for just a a quick moment here because something really important happened when he approached me on this. I had almost turned him away. I was extremely busy. The day was frustrating. Um, I I thought he was coming to me to ask some random work question. And I almost said, man, I I really don't got time right now. And I'm pretty sure he saw that look on my face. But instead of saying that, I went ahead and asked him what he needed. And with a shaky voice, he he went ahead and asked for this advice. And, and I just had to mention that because it's important, Christians, to be prepared at a moment's notice to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter what kind of day you're having or what kind of situation you think you're dealing with. God sends us divine appointments at the most unlikely times. And we need to be prepared in the spirit to handle those gifts that he gives us. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to stop for just a minute and tell you, I never could have given this kid advice if I had, if I had, you know, sent him away. Yeah. But um, anyway, let's, uh, let's get back on this. I, I know I have some scriptures and things that I want to bring up for, for anyone else out there that's in this type of situation. Um, but what, what would you have to say, Josh, for a person who comes to you in a situation like this and and presents it in that way? Yeah, uh, this is such a weighty question, and it's one that we have to, as snakebirds and Christians, really respond to it with a ton of wisdom and a ton of grace. Because first and foremost, I would try to understand all that's going on. I would try to understand where his heart is, and it's really neat to kind of get the story and get the trajectory that he's going in. It's so tragic that he would feel that judgment and that uh, rejection from um, local churches or whoever it might be, whether this it's, you know, whether this question is coming from right here in our city, or if it's coming from, you know, thousands of miles away, whatever the the case might be, I would pray that our reaction to it's all going to be the same. Yeah. And for me, you know, uh, jokingly, I would say simply no. You know, does that mean I'm living in sin from here on with no blessing from God? No, not at all. 
because God's grace is something that we all need to have a very good understanding of, you know, and I think that's where we start to leading to Romans talking about, um, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Mm. But then also there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And, uh, you know, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And was the pregnancy out of wedlock a sin? Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, what you choose to do moving forward is all about how God's going to view this, you know, and, and exactly. Yeah. So, and it's really, I just, man, I prayed about this one for so long because I had a unique and similar situation happen, um, where a girl that was serving in a, in a leadership capacity got pregnant out of, um, outside of being married and, and we kind of had to deal with it. And she got really upset at me for saying something that I said. And, and, um, in the long run, I don't think that I said, I don't think that I came at it the right way, but I know I said the right thing. And I've ever since that day, I've always been like, man, I wish I could have a do over with that one. God. Yeah. It's that's, that's a hard thing because you don't want to wink at sin and tell them something's okay when it's not. Yes. But at the same time, uh, yeah, yeah, that's it's tough. Yeah, and I mean, it's like, how would Jesus answer this? What mm. would what would he say? You know, and and again, we don't want to just completely let people walk on the grace of God. Yeah. And not feel the natural consequences of their sin, but we also, you know, we're not we're not judge, jury, and executioner. And mm-hmm. the minute that we do that, it makes me think of the unforgiving servant who owed millions. And then all of a sudden he turns around and finds the guy and he's forgiven of that debt. And he turns around and finds the guy who owes him like 20,000. And he's like, you'll be in prison until you yeah. can pay me, you know? Yeah. I, I think a lot of times it's uh, the, the caution in someone's mind that's been going to church for years is like, you know, I've seen how you've been living. You mm. don't come in here with that oh, until yeah. you, but, but they don't know what change recently just happened with the Holy Spirit in their life. Yeah. And so to, to say that blatantly to someone is, is insinuating you go fix yourself first, then he, he will let you come yeah. in here. Yeah. And so that in, in it's, in it's sticky, I understand in some people's minds because that they're like, you know, I've been watching you. You're not living. You don't seem to want to live a godly life at all. Mm-hmm. But um, let me let me jump into the specifics of, of this situation real quick. Um, the first thing I want to address is this idea that, that someone would have to fix the situation they're in. Mm-hmm. For this young man, while he was indeed living a, a sinful lifestyle prior to this, he, he's now seeking righteousness. Just kind of mention that. Yeah. Um, I can tell you with 100% confidence that the righteous thing to do would not be abandoning the soon-to-be-born child with a mother just so you could claim you're not living in sin anymore. Mm-hmm. We have that sort of thing going on every day with people who couldn't care less, and it's overwhelming our orphanages, and it's it's not something I would recommend doing. It's terrible. It is. And um, th- that's the easy thing to do. So the righteous thing to do would be make things right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what righteousness is. It's to be in the right rather than the unright. And so there are a few scriptures that I want to bring up here. The first would be uh, Zacchaeus in Luke 19. I'm not going to go deep with any of these examples, but just briefly look at these situations. Zacchaeus was a tax collector who swindled people out of their hard-earned money in a very unrighteous way. I assume that Zacchaeus had always had a hunch he was living in sin, but when he had that face-to-face encounter with Jesus, it was at that moment he decided to make this decision. After his interaction with Jesus, he didn't make a decision to stop tax collecting. He chose to do it righteously from that Mm. point forward. That's the key. Or how about a completely different profession, soldiers? In Luke 3.14, we see that the Roman soldiers asked John the Baptist what they should do to have a righteous life. And John told them, do not extort money from anyone. Don't harass anyone. Be content with your wages. Because back then, the Roman soldiers could kind of do the tax collector thing, where they they hornswoggle people mm-hmm. out of money yeah. and stuff. John didn't tell them to abandon their current situation. He told them to do it from that point forward in a different way. And I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 7.20 that says, Each person is to remain in that state which he was called. Not a state of sin, 
but the situation you find yourself in. Mm -hmm. If God wants you to move from that situation, he's going to make that clear to you. But the main point is to do things different moving forward from that point on. And you mentioned that earlier, Josh. It totally stole my thunder, but (laughs) (laughs) But no, it's key. We're on the same page with that. I was asked. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, for this young man who found himself to be a soon-to-be dad and anyone else out there who's in a similar situation, I would encourage you to take the advice Jesus gave to that woman caught in adultery in John 8, 11, who was being quite immoral previous to that. Mm-hmm. And the advice is go and sin no more. Not that you'd be sinless the rest of your life, but that you're now following a new way. You're pulling from a new source of strength. Um, so if you have a half complete family, make it a complete one. If you have a questionable character, turn those clothes in for a new identity in Christ. He'll make you clean. Yeah. And I, I do realize that not everyone has such a clear-cut decision or situation as we just described here, but the remedy is still the same. Uh, God can turn any situation on earth into an amazing testimony. It can be told from generations to come, your family, your kids, kids. Um, if you'll surrender your life to, to God, He can He can turn that into a testimony. Yes. And, I just, I really, I really feel that strong for this young man. And I'm just, the last thing I have to leave on the topic for this particular one is Romans 5, 1 and 2 that says, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Mm-hmm. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Yeah. So it's about this point forward, not what happened before your interaction with God. So yes. I, I hope that helps anyone out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it was interesting the way it was phrased. Uh, does that mean I'm living in sin and from here on with no blessing from God? And mm-hmm. for any Christian to convey that to this individual, it's just so sad. It is. I mean, I was looking in scripture for any verse that might even refer to that. Uh, Psalm 66, 18 said, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But but God has surely listened and has heard my prayer. And, you know, it started making me wonder, uh, are there any um, passages that support God not hearing us? And, and I think the only times that that is supported in scripture is when the person is not seeking repentance, but just leaning in to unrighteousness. Yeah, there are. There's quite a few scriptures that speak of God not hearing our prayers, and Mm -hmm. it's always tied to um, a blatant harboring of sin, yeah. uh, uh, keeping back. You you know what's wrong, but you're doing it anyway because you like it. Harboring and hardening of your heart. Yes. Yeah. 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 Practicing and, sin. Yeah. Some of those scarier scriptures talk mm-hmm. about. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so the key is to repent and get right and move forward. I mean, yeah. cut and dry and don't let the haters, <laughs> don't let them, you know, yeah. Don't I let mean, him affect you. I, I wonder if they actually gave thought to what they were telling him, mm-hmm. because you're telling him to abandon a child and mother now instead of make it right. Yeah. Like, wouldn't you tell him to make it right? Yeah. So, yeah. And I wasn't there. But anyway, we hope that that, that helps anyone else out there that's having those same questions and yeah. feeling those those voices of judgment. Yeah. All right, Josh. So should we move on to the next uh, and last one for this mailbag episode? We should, Yes. And this one's a doozy. (laughs) It is, isn't it? Yeah. All right. I'm going to read it as it's written here. So recently I had a conversation with a college student who was taught that the divine name Yahweh came from ancient Egypt and that the Jews adopted this God as their own. Is there merit to this? Are universities and places of higher education failing our next generations? <laughs> yeah, that's It's kind of a 180 from yeah. these that we've been talking about, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, this is a very specific question, and I, I honestly spent more time in my notes dissecting the broader issue of why a professor would teach this type of thing mm-hmm. than trying to defend the ancient acronym as unique to the Jewish people. Yes. Because the thing is, it's not that hard to show 
through scholarly research um, in archaeological finds that the divine name Yahweh was unique to the ancient Jewish people. The Tetragrammaton. It's not hard. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, with that being said, I, I don't know the professor who might have taught this. I can't even confirm this kid was telling the truth when he claimed that a professor taught him this. But I, I do know that I've heard a lot of things come out of our newer generation's mouths that professors are teaching mm-hmm. that are way off. Yeah. So um, in certain cases, you know, history's being altered, retaught. Certain agendas are being pushed for many different reasons. And these kids, you know, they're paying an enormous amount of money to be taught by experts, and they find it very hard to consider these experts wrong because yes. they're the experts. You know what I mean? So th- this topic, it's it's automatically going to stir some feelings on both sides of the pendulum because on one side, we have people who believe a few good Google searches can make them smarter than an expert. And on the other side, we have certain experts that only know how to regurgitate knowledge that they truly haven't even tested. They're mm-hmm. just like, I know I teach this out of the book. This is the curriculum. Yeah. And um, so I, I want to tread this topic with a healthy balance of what we're seeing in education these days. Mm-hmm. What, what say you, Josh? So you're saying the answer to the first question of, is there any merit to this is a resounding no. No. Yeah. Yeah. So we've, we already answered the question. We're going to dive yeah, into why. No. <laughs> Questions answered. Yeah. I, I said it. Just go away. Yeah. No, no, I like it. Yeah. Of course not. Um, There's no merit to that. I haven't experienced this as much as you because uh, I don't talk to college kids maybe as much. I don't know. I I, um, I have experienced some, and I think it's interesting because we were doing an episode just a little bit ago, and you were talking about how Dr. Dobson, James Dobson, said, um, if we fail to teach the next generation both Christian and secular, um, then we the family values, I believe you said, then we could lose a whole, am, am, yeah. am I yeah, saying no, that Yeah, right? yeah, that's a general idea that whether a believer or not, if we're not passing down proper education to our next generation, we're going to lose it all. Yes, yeah, and so I feel like that's pretty evident, especially in this question. And um, the first place that I started to go was statistics. Mm-hmm. And I found this statistic, and I know everybody says 68% of statistics are made up, and I just made that one up. But, <laughs> I mean, of course, Barna and different places exist because they bring, you know, large amounts of data that they have Gallup. analyzed. Gallup, yeah, yeah. So this is uh, something that I found. It said about 25% of college professors are professing atheists or agnostics. Five to seven percent of the general population is atheist or agnostic. So that's almost five times more than the general population. Only six percent of college professors said that the Bible is the actual word of God. Fifty-one percent described it as an ancient book of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts. 75% believe that religion does not belong in public schools, which is tragic because it seems, uh, you know, even though we we don't subscribe to like, God's not dead. God's not dead. (laughs) 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 That's such a play for emotion. Um, Even though we don't feel like that's typically a normal classroom, I feel like a lot of people bash on Christianity and bash on the Bible because it's an easy platform to stand on in a secular setting. Yeah, no, it is. It's, and I wonder how how old was the the stats on that article? Uh, I Do you believe know? this was twenty seventeen. Okay, I, I would be curious to see an updated version. Yeah, of that, yeah. Know? Sometimes it was hard to find statistics from twenty twenty or twenty. You know, that's funny because I, I was actually looking at some stats for uh, a couple other things in this, and I the, the one I found was twenty seventeen too. Oh, okay. So I'm wondering if it doesn't go in yeah. these, these intervals. Yeah. of a certain amount of years. Maybe I found one and I was like, oh, this is wild. And it was 2013. And I'm like, yo, too old, too old. Come on. (laughs) Come on, Gallup. Come on, Barna. (laughs) But yeah, no, I I agree. And I I have three um, reasons. I believe that higher education in certain cases is failing Mm -hmm. our next generation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Are you, you, are you still going Josh on? Why don't you go ahead and go with those three and then I will, uh, See how you did. No, I'm just kidding. That sounds terrible. You agreed me. <laughs> Professor Josh. Yeah, yeah. Not an atheist or an agnostic. 
So um, the, the three reasons I believe higher education uh, is failing our next generation in cases is political bias, personal bias, and spiritual reality. In all three of these realms, we can have confirmation bias as individuals where we push an agenda for whatever reason we've decided in our heads and and we create our boxes of education where we make people like us. And, you know, we talked a lot about this in our echo chamber episode a while back, but um, I think we really need to revisit the idea here in this question. Is our educational system failing the next generation? So uh, political bias. Um. When I say political bias here, I'm not talking about Republican versus Democrat. Uh, this is referring to government subsidies, which are tied heavily to the political realms. Um, every year, the government allocates money to private and state-run establishments, and there's criteria attached to these handouts. And if the criteria aren't met, then the money can be reduced or taken away altogether. And for higher education, this can be in regard to curriculum, research, and sadly enough, certain high-paying agendas and special interest groups have a big part of this. I've personally talked to professors who have told me that curriculum is actually controlled in this way, and it depends on money flow. Wow. So this is one way that, that... political bias can override truth and facts being taught in schools. Um, and then personal bias, we have, you know, after the filter of political bias, we have personal leanings of professors themselves. Uh, if you've been following the news surrounding universities in the last decade, then you don't need me to tell you the agendas being pushed. Um, they're starting to create an atmosphere where professors and students alike are jumping on bandwagons of ideology and teaching those leanings Instead of critically thinking and teaching facts, that's the number one thing I see is the critical thinking is out the window. Yeah. You, you jump on this bandwagon or this bandwagon, which which part of the tribe are you on? You know, yeah. there, there's not a lot of thinking, it seems, anymore. Um, and, and I'll say, you know, when the student's grades are affected by a professor's personal bias, a student's going to fall in line. They're they're paying for that degree they're working so hard for, and they're they're not going to throw that away. That's they're they're working for a degree, and so the scary thing is they they get it to those ends. Now some students they're all about it. They jump on the bandwagon. They love it, but the scary thing is when they graduate, there's a similar situation um, being perpetuated to the next levels mm. of keeping because these like I'm saying it's all about money. It, you got it. You got to fall in line with where the money flow is. And I, this might sound very weird to some people out there, but it it's a thing. It's a big thing in I this topic. It, yeah. Uh, but but that's the personal bias aspect of it. I really think people can spot that when you pay attention. It's um, one of those things you can choose to see or not. But uh, the third and most relevant of all regarding this specific question would be the spiritual reality of why professors would teach false information about the Bible. And this one, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, is, is pretty obvious, I think, because since the Garden of Eden, Satan's been trying to steal knowledge of salvation from humankind. And we shouldn't be surprised to see the wide way that leads to destruction where many are traveling to be uh, the main agenda being pushed. Uh, Of course, professors who don't believe in God, they're going to be giving biased information to discredit biblical truth. Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, evolution is a big part of that subsidy talk, you know. And this is part of, I think it's intertwined with the spiritual. Mm -hmm. I I think that there's there's an overlap there. So um, in certain cases, is there ignorance? Yeah, there is. But I I think we should never forget that the natural agenda of fallen man is going to be against God. There's a spiritual flow in the background that can't be seen by everybody that I think that a believer needs to keep that in the back of their mind. Yeah. So I, I know there's there's quite a bit to talk about in this, Josh. What what are some of your thoughts as as I mentioned those three? Yeah, well, as you mentioned those three, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And um, the political bias of just wanting to fall in line and getting the money. And I mean, you can see that even with like states and school districts and things like that, where it's like, this is the, this is the guidelines we have to follow. And we just, you know, Mm -hmm. we need that funding. And then um, personal bias, of course, 
I remember having a uh, teacher in high school. It was right when I first came from being homeschooled in eighth grade to being um, back in public school. And I really kind of like went overboard telling the teacher how much I didn't believe in evolution. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I got a fail feeling great. I had to retake um, that freshman uh, science class or whatever because i think i railed way too hard on it and he just was not having it and i I don't know i i can't remember back too much of all that was done but it just it was not fun and um i remember just even some of the debate i would have with several students in that class about why we felt like one or the other was right and I, I probably pushed more buttons and stirred more pots than I should have during that time. <laughs> but I mean, definitely there is that personal bias. And then of course, you know, spiritual bias is so obvious because of, um, did you say spiritual bias or well, spiritual? Well, there, there can be spiritual bias too, Spiritual bias or spiritual, spiritual re- reality. Reality yes. um, of just Satan working in the background and poisoning the hearts of people towards God because it's it's weird. There's times where you can you can like be okay with every type of religion, but sometimes you'll say Christian and people just it's like the back the hair on the back of their neck starts to stand up. Funny how that works. It is. Kind of suggestive. It, I yeah, think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of course I'm biased. Uh, yeah. Well I, one of the statistics that I found was talking about different college faculty and it said that they felt warmly about most religious groups, but felt coldly about evangelicals and Mormons, um, that they usually displayed positive feelings towards Jews, Buddhists, Catholics, and atheists. Um, they felt more unfavorably towards evangelical Christians. This is the only religious group about which a majority of non-evangelical faculty have negative feelings. Um it's just wild to even read that because there are so many uh, in this in this particular poll that I found just talking about how they single out evangelicals yeah. as the as the troublemakers or as the ones that they don't want to hear anything about. No, for sure. It, it seems that way to me, for sure. And, and I know they make a lot of Christianese movies about that kind of thing. Yeah, and they do. <laughs> but it, it is something that's happening. Yeah, and Christian have responded by leaning into it and almost like trying to become the martyrs, you know. And yeah, yeah, they make their movies into these giant advertising campaigns. Text your friends, God's not dead, and it's like, yeah. well, come on, we don't need to <laughs> perpetuate it. Yeah, and under part of understanding the spiritual reality of this whole thing is is knowing that. Uh, things are going to get worse, not better, yeah. as the end approaches. Yeah. Um, we're not going to turn this thing around and take over the world. Yeah. So it's it's just good to be aware. I don't mean to be like a fatalistic doom and gloom, but um, our joy does overshadow that. Yes. All I can say is that if you are a young snakebird listener and you're walking into your philosophy class and Hercules is your professor, just turn around. <laughs> just, <laughs> just drop the class and take it another way. Just remember, <laughs> even a fool is thought wise when kept silent. <laughs> it's <laughs> Professor Kevin Sorbo. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm leaning back into the God's Not Dead. Oh, I just got it. Oh, okay. Hercules, Kevin yes, Sorbo. Yeah, okay. Oh, okay. That's great. <laughs> just drop the class, take it online, whatever you need to do. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, well, well done. That's funny. Well, yeah, it, it's a it's a topic that it's kind of a hot button topic for a lot of people because I I've talked to several. You mentioned earlier that I might have talked to more college students than you. I don't know about that, but we do at the place that I work. We move through a lot of college students and. I'm kind of an an apologetics guy. I keep up with professors and peer review journals and stuff like that. Not, not that I'm extra smart. I just kind of like looking into that stuff. Yeah. But, um, one of the things that I thought I would read, I I recently saw a friend of mine that I I graduated. I I guess we were more of acquaintances in high school, but, uh, we graduated And and if you were to look back at the yearbook, a lot of people would probably consider this guy a, uh, least likely to succeed type of character. And uh, I saw that on Facebook the other day that he's he's a professor of law. He's uh, works at this law firm. He's he's in he's got his hands in so many different pies, and it's just weird. 
And I saw that he had written a book. Yeah. And I was like, hey, that's cool. Me too. We went to the same school. Oh, that's you cool. Know, I didn't say that. I was just yeah. in my mind. And, and so I, I ordered his book. And I, I'm not going to I'm not gonna say it yet because I don't know. I don't know the direction he goes with this. And I don't, I don't recommend books when I haven't gotten to the end yet. Okay. But it's his little manifesto. And I want to re- read what <laughs> kind of sent him down this road of seeking further knowledge because he... I mean, he, the guy's got credentials. He obviously is well-educated, but he saw some deep flaws in our educational system. Yeah. So I'm going to read a couple of pieces from his book. When here. you call it his manifesto, I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I, I know. That's yeah. why I'm not I'm – not, I'm going to finish the thing before I – but anyway, his. I, I think there's some, some uh, weight to his opinion because he does have credentials. So uh, he writes – I first noticed a fallacious issue with the way my peers and I were being taught to think during grade school. At seemingly endless intervals, I found myself inquiring of my surrounding teachers and adult authorities as to why and to what bearing our studies informed the greater conversation of human existence and purpose. All to negative reprimands along the lines of, it doesn't matter, just write it down, memorize it. In other words, my observations were mere piffle. Abstract thought was neither acceptable nor tested. And the most important things I could learn and perform were simply to always stand in line, do what I was told, and obey assigned authority without question. And then he continues, In following, I began to realize later in life that it was not that many of my instructors and authorities were too apathetic or unwilling to properly answer my interrogatories. Smart fellow. Mm. (laughs) Rather, they simply did not know the answers. And rather than admit such a fact... They then expose their egos and pride by wielding the shield of illusion. Wow. And he he goes in depth on some of the the things that he's noticed and and how it's kind of like um, a doctor that prescribes medicine. He just knows if you've got this condition, you give this medicine. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know the science behind the medicine. He doesn't know the actual people that put the chemicals together and sure. all that. You're just a middleman that gives it to the people. Yeah. And that's what a lot of professors are. Um, the analogy was mine, just to be clear. But he <laughs> he he really points out that they're in I mean, he's gone through a lot of school and he's saying that there's a lot of people out there. The professors out there that they're gonna just regurgitate stuff to yeah. you, just memorize it, just write it down, and all this stuff. And not that they're all like that, but it's a deep flaw that many, if you critically think and look at it honestly, many have noticed. And I think it, it's something that should be a conversation in our day and age. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and that's pretty scary. Yeah, because yeah, it's is. like this is what it said, and you just take it you know yeah as it is yeah there's no room for for further investigation especially on the spiritual side of things yeah because if you start i mean if you get into like quantum theory and stuff there's some really spiritual rabbit holes you can go down mm-hmm. but they'll they'll shut it down real quick yeah because you're not allowed to ask those questions mm. so it's yeah there's a lot of, a lot of um avenues we could take with that but it's this is kind of a broad skim of the waters here yeah. so yeah so if you're okay, I mean, I guess the question, are universities and places of higher education failing our next generations? In some ways, yes. I mean, depending on who the professor is, depending on what they're teaching, if they're encouraging you to only accept what they're teaching and, and if they're not um, broadening your understanding or um, if they're trying to narrow your view on God, then yes, they are. Yeah, it's if there's no room for... Being able to even question your own beliefs or theirs. Yeah. That's not a healthy inlet and outlet type of learning. Yeah. And I found this uh, interesting because I was looking up um, different people that have gone through even Christian college and uh, if they'd had a falling away or a disillusionment. And this is what one um, said, uh, a historian of higher education at the State University of New York and the author of The Fundamentalist You, Keeping the Faith in Higher Education, said provoking spiritual struggle is part of 
our tradition. He looked at the oral histories of evangelical missionaries recalling their college education in the 20s, and this is 1920s, uh, (laughs) 30s and 40s, and found they almost always talked about their college experience as a time of spiritual struggle. And I would say that if you are listening and maybe you're in college and you're like, well, I am questioning things right now, this is struggle is not a bad thing. Struggle is how we grow. God can take any of our questions. And Mm -hmm. if, you know, if you are questioning, is God real? Is, is the world created through, um, divine creation or is it through evolution? He can stand up to those kind of questions and, and we want to stand alongside you in that. So if you are struggling, you know, join the community and, and reach out and let us know what we can do to further speak into your life and and find a good church that has um, a place where you can grow and where you can learn and where you can rub shoulders with other believers, things like that. Yeah, yeah. No no matter how specific your questions are, please send them to us. Yes. We'd love to hear yeah. them because it, it helps us go into these. Because that, that's, I mean, if you're the listener out there, we want to know what you want to be, you know, hearing about in, in, in the spiritual realm and all that. So send us specific questions yeah. so we can address those because that's what people are thinking about. Funny you should mention that. We just came up with this new segment called Snake Bird Mailbag. That we did. We've been doing it. Is this meta? We're doing it right now. (laughs) Yeah, so I kind of like the idea. I I mean, it's it's some minis. This is a little longer than I anticipated. Yeah, definitely. We'll we'll choose on each time we do one of these, whether we'll do one or two or three topics, depending on how long they are. This is definitely the maiden voyage. Yes, yeah. That one guy talked about daddy for forever. (laughs) (laughs) Daddy didn't like that. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, That's enough. If of I that. ever refer to myself as daddy around my wife, she just rolls her eyes and is like, don't do it. Just guys at work love it. <laughs> I'm sure they do. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, my wife would too. I've never, I don't do that one in front of her. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> hey, there's always a first time for everything. I don't know. Let's just, let's just end this episode. So that's uh mailbag number one. And, um, we hope that you got some things out of it. Uh, we hope that maybe as you're listening, you have some questions that are forming that you can shoot over to us you can always do that by connecting with us on facebook or through facebook messenger we're on there as snakebird and you can also send us an email at connect at basnakebird.com we'd love to hear from you and we'd love to include your question in our next mailbag episode that's right guys we're so grateful that you're here with us and that you keep tuning in and we're just uh, we're we're loving the iron sharpening iron with you and me and Josh in the study. So please, everything he just said, reach out and uh, give us a good rating and review if you find it in your heart. Helps push the episodes out there. And um, yeah, that's it. That is it. That would be awesome. All right, snakebirds, remember whatever you do, wherever you go, no matter what life throws at you, there's never been a better time to follow the words of Jesus and be a snakebird. <laughs>